Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. I am your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm delighted to welcome a very, very accomplished technology professional turned entrepreneur, Dr. Murli Murthy. Murli, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashutosh. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Murli is the author of Supersonic. He is a senior partner with Sigma Ventures. He did his doctoral thesis in the knowledge processes and their role in innovation, a comparison of selected Chinese and Indian practices. And he has been for over three decades, CEO of major IT companies. So Murli, let's first talk about your book. Tell me about the book. Yeah, uh, this, this, this is something which I've, uh, which I've written about uh, in the author's note to the book. And, uh, uh, and I think a lot of people have liked it. So um, I will just say exactly what it says over there. Mm-hmm. That this is uh, what I would call, it sounds very clumsy. It's a historical techno thriller, mm-hmm. uh, which means that it's a thriller which has something to do with history and it has uh, something to do with technology. Uh, and at the same time, it, uh, it manages to retain uh, the entire flavor of the thriller. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for those who get scared away by this, uh, I, uh, I can tell them that the history which I'm talking about is recent Indian history, specifically after independence or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I focus on some important events. Uh, well, uh, since the book has been out for some time, I can say it. Uh, and uh, the title of the book is Supersonic, mm-hmm. a thriller that rewrites history. So this offers an alternative view of some history, specifically uh, the assassination or, or the death of uh, 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 Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri in 1966, and almost immediately afterwards, the death of uh, Dr. Homi Bhabha, who at that time was heading India's nuclear program uh, in a crash uh, in um, in Switzerland. So uh, that's the history part of it, uh, and that's the thriller part of it. The technology part of it uh, is not about gizmos and tools and uh, gadgets and stuff like that, but the making of technology and how tough it is and the kind of people who do it uh, and how countries can go wrong if they don't, uh, uh, if they don't understand and appreciate the importance of it, so that's broadly what it is. And the background is about uh, fighter aircraft, supersonic fighter aircraft, and so on, uh, which has a kind of glamour which has attracted me from the time I was a child. Sure. Uh, so tell me, you know, since you spoke about uh, you know Lal Bahadur Shastri and Dr. Homi Bhabha, uh, are you do you subscribe to the view that it was not natural death, but something else happened? Well, there has there's not been any adequate explanation so far at all. Okay, uh, and there is. I no, think I'm saying from your book's perspective. I'm saying from your from books the book's perspective. Yes, I do believe it, and it's not my book's perspective alone. Uh, recently, in the past fifteen years or so, some evidence has come out, specifically in the form of some books which have been published, mm-hmm. uh, which allegedly, because you know these things can never be proved, uh, have interviews uh, with CIA officers and with ex-Soviet. Uh, uh, KGB officers who uh, who have testified that yes, uh, uh, you know uh, this was more than suspicious. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've even visited the the Lal Bahadur Shastri Square in in Uzbekistan. Exactly. And so uh, very interesting. So tell me, uh, Muli, why did you select a thriller as the genre for your book? Yeah. Uh, now it started out by wanting to really talk about the history of the Indian supersonic uh, aircraft uh, uh, project and industry and 
why I think uh, our country has gone badly wrong in, uh, in not developing it as it could have been developed. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this happened during the time I was doing my doctoral thesis and uh, I had two choices. I could write a, you know, an academic paper about it or an academic book, uh, which I don't think people read too much, mm -hmm. uh, except for some dedicated students. But I think my, I'm more of an evangelist as far as technology and innovation is concerned. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important to get the message across to as many people as possible. Okay. Uh, and uh, to write about technology um, in the form of a thriller is not anything which is new. Uh, to write about history is not anything which is new. This is something which Frederick Fawcett does so well, Michael Christian does so well. Uh, so, you know, um, I just kind of followed. Fascinating. <laughs> that so, you know, tell me, uh, what makes a good writer? A good writer is a person who has found a voice to write with. Mm -hmm. Now, I've chosen my words carefully uh, since, since I've had to answer this question lots of times. It doesn't have to be his voice. Nobody has uh, their unique voice. It's always a composite of what they've read, what they've heard, what they themselves have said. And when they've suddenly realized that, look, I've said something which is really meaningful. Mm -hmm. And if they're able to translate it into text in a book, that's what makes a good writer. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And uh, a follow-on question, what makes a good story? A good story is one in which the reader wants to read what's on the page and also wants to turn the page to the next. Okay. So, you know, so that's the simple definition, at least of a thriller. Very interesting. So, you know, I, you know that I have written uh, several books mm -hmm. um, and I've often been asked this question that what is your work schedule when writing? Well, so I want uh, to ask you the same question. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I'm uh, pretty much a morning person, so I tend to write during the mornings. Uh, it's only on the weekdays, uh, on, on, on the weekends, on Saturday, Sunday, where I find myself writing during the day. Mm. Uh, Ian Fleming once wrote that you should aim for 2,000 words written without looking back. You should just write it fast, not bother to edit it. And at the end of the book, that's the only time you should look back. Well, I can't read uh, uh, 2,000 words. I'm not a full-time writer. Mm. Uh, but I think about 500 to 1,000 a day. You know, that's when you can really get lost in writing. Unless you get lost in writing the book, it will not come out. Absolutely. So, you know, just share with you when I'm in the, in the frame of writing, mm -hmm. then I wake up at two o'clock in the morning, go to my study. And by the time my wife wakes up at six o'clock, I would have written three and a half thousand words. Exactly. And yet for many, many times, you know, weeks, I don't write at all. So mm -hmm. it's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So now let's move to uh, the the next section, which is on technology and innovation. Uh, my first question to you is that why do you feel technology and innovation in India should be a concern for everyone? Uh, I think it's because uh, in the modern world, and I would say this is something that's happened from, say, the mid-19th century to now, uh, I think it's pretty much self-evident that uh, technology has become the central driver of everything that happens in the world around us, for good or for bad. Uh, we always say that it's for good because, you know, it's improved uh, the nature of our life. I won't call it the quality of our life in so many ways. Uh, but at the same time, it's had lots of negative effects, such as, of course, now we're talking about climate change, which is the most important. So it, it's impossible to escape technology. So it's important that we integrate technology and uh, it, at least an awareness of it in everything that we do. So, uh, uh, so, so, I think that's been insufficiently done in India. Mm -hmm. It's not kind of woven into a, into the fabric of how we live and how we think as yet. Okay. But, you know, in a country which uh, prides itself on its technology uh, or technological prowess and uh, the 
the technological brains. And we always say that in most cases, including our mobile, we've jumped generations. Uh, Why do you feel that, uh, you know, it should be a concern for everyone? As I said, it's not something that's woven itself into uh, everything that we do. Mm -hmm. It's not a way of thinking. It's not a way of living. You see, uh, you can, can have... Can we a... understand this with an example? Okay. Uh, a country in which I've lived, I've spent about five years there, in which technology is woven into the way that they live is Germany. Okay. This is a classic example. Anybody yeah. who knows uh, who's been to Germany... Uh, it's there all the time. People tend to think in those terms. They like to use their hands a lot. You know, you find an immense number of uh, Germans who have hobbies which have to do with something mechanical, like train sets or model cars. If you walk into a, um, into a German supermarket, you'll find still 100 magazines that have only to do with those hobbies. Mm -hmm. That's not the kind of thing which you see over here. Okay. So what you're referring to are the DIY kind of magazines. DIY, the interest in science, and mm -hmm. technology, right. tinkering around, that kind of thing. Fair enough. And uh, why don't you share with us some of the successes in the areas of technology from your own career? Yeah, uh, I did my BTEC uh, in, um, in those days, it was electrical engineering with a specialization in computer science from IIT Bombay. And then uh, I did my MBA from IIM Calcutta. Uh, I joined a startup at that time. It was HCL now, of course, it's HCL Technologies, which is one of the three biggest. Uh, in, in the early days, HCL was a phenomenal startup. Uh, it had a kind of sparkle, which I still don't see anywhere. And they were willing to encourage people in anything. So uh, I became responsible for a number of products, which at that time were even ahead of what was being done in the United States. Mm. For example, uh, I came up with a spec for a relational database management system uh, in software. Uh, two years before uh, Oracle had even been established as a company. Uh, now, so I've seen the journey of Indian industry of how many promising people have wanted to do these things mm -hmm. and the problems of why, you know, uh, companies were not able to grow to couple of, uh, the problems of finance, the problems of infrastructure and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet people have kind of struggled on and done something. So uh, that, that, that was one. Then I uh, was, uh, 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 you know, uh, part of the core team really, which uh, was responsible for the computerization of banks. I was one of the first who did uh, uh, industry promotion for the Indian software industry in Europe. Uh, I was the CEO for software, um, of a software company that specialized. It, it was one of the first e-commerce companies. So all of that also led me to, uh, to academics, PhD. And now, of course, uh, I'm the co-founder of Sigma Ventures, which is a venture capital fund, which focuses only uh, on, um, on innovative technology. So it's been the story of my life. Wonderful. So, you know, uh, I've, I've spoken to many people who've been uh, probably are in my vintage in technology. And one of the things that seems to come out repeatedly is that Indian technology companies have not really produced good products. Exactly. What are your thoughts on that and why? Uh, well, the, well, part of the reason really is the, uh, is the ecosystem around technology and around innovation mm -hmm. uh, has uh, remained reasonably uh, or not reasonably uh, somewhat fragmented as compared to what one finds in other countries, even in China, especially in China where it started to get integrated. But if you take the United States, which is the gold standard for all these things, there is a highly integrated ecosystem that uh, 
you know, uh, marries uh, the academic world, Stanford University with, uh, uh, with the world of entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley, there's funding from uh, venture capital, there's advertising, there's marketing that consumers are willing to take it. So everything comes in, mm-hmm. you know, here it's very fragmented and that's part of the reason. Also in the process, um, the, uh, the same thing, that concern about technology, uh, if a choice is there between a technology decision and a business decision, mm-hmm. Indian companies tend to go towards the business decision. Okay. While you find American entrepreneurs, whether it's Gates or Jobs or Elon Musk, they'll always take a bad bet or a good bet. You know, time tells if it's good or bad on technology. Okay. And uh, where do you think India hasn't performed enough or has gone wrong? Well, uh, I take a rather radical view of these things. I think uh, the R&D ecosystem, the technology ecosystem was developing very well in India, surprisingly in the days of the license permit Raj. If you look back to much of the work which was done both in the private and the public sectors, under those kind of constraints, Indians uh, would, and, and Indian organizations were doing well. But in the, liberal, in the liberalization of the economy and the economic reforms in 1991, that link between economic reforms and manufacturing and R&D was lost. Okay. You know, it was suddenly cut mm. and uh, Indian companies have never been able to, uh, you know, react till very recently. It's only in the past five or six years mm. uh, when, you know, uh, essentially when the funding ecosystem, that is private equity, venture capitalists come into being. Interesting. So my last question on technology and innovation before I move to your thesis, you know, you spoke about the fund you are associated with. What is your present involvement in catalyzing technology and innovation in our country? Yeah, so uh, that's essentially the fund. Uh, Sigma Ventures is a fund, which is, uh, I think, probably the first fund in India which focuses on technology and innovation. We started with a focus on defense and aerospace, uh, and this was uh, at the time of COVID, etc. Uh, so, so we're quite well known uh, in the Indian defense and the national security uh, establishment. Uh, but uh, quite recently, to take advantage of the growth in the economy, etc., uh, we broadened our focus to five sectors, not just uh, defense and aerospace. And uh, we're looking uh, at companies which have multiple use technologies, that is, which can be used across sectors. Okay. Uh, because uh, uh, the effect of COVID has been suddenly to make people understand the importance of technology. Correct. And this is, uh, there was a very interesting McKinsey report which showed, for instance, that companies now consider technology to be twice as important as they did just one year back. Mm. Very interesting. So Muri, let's talk about your doctoral thesis, which is the knowledge processes and their role in innovation, a comparison of selected Chinese and Indian practices. Tell me about your uh, key hypothesis and your findings or conclusions. Well, the key hypothesis in that was that uh, um, innovation uh, is is the creation of new knowledge from existing knowledge. That that's how I defined it, and that was uh, a uh, a brand new um, um, it was a brand new definition, and also uh, that knowledge processes determine the extent to which innovation succeeds mm-hmm. or not, either at the micro or the macro level. So so that uh, was a proposition or the hypothesis which I. Uh, which I investigated specifically with reference to India and China. Uh, the sectors I focused in was IT industry because that's what I knew well. Uh, and what came out was that, yes, uh, uh, the way you process knowledge, the way you look at knowledge uh, and the way uh, you handle knowledge has uh, essentially determines what you do uh, uh, with technology or what you do with opportunity. Uh, if you see an opportunity and if 
if uh, the way you look at knowledge is that you look at alternatives which include technology, mm -hmm. then you will find yourself tending towards technological innovation. If you don't do that, you look for business solutions or you'll find some other way of handling it, uh, which does not include innovation. And uh, there's a clear difference uh, between India and China in that. But I think in this, uh, the real contribution of the thesis was that I was able to describe what an innovation ecosystem is. The innovation ecosystem consists of a number of elements such as government, military, academic, uh, world, uh, 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 scientific research institutions, industry, uh, the financial sector, uh, and so on. So all of these need to integrate. The more this, all these disparate elements are integrated, uh, the more successful and more innovative uh, you will find uh, the, uh, the sector or, or the country as a whole. The more fragmented it is, the less innovative. So, so in terms of, you know, since you've done so much work on India and China, uh, what would you say are some of the key differences between the two countries when it comes to supporting technology or technological com companies? Because India has not produced anything, any, any organizations like Alibaba or, or its group subsidiaries or, you know, there's multi, multi-billion dollar organizations which are homegrown. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason, as I said, was that uh, the integration between all of these different elements, mm -hmm which are government, military, financial uh, sector, uh, the educational sector, industry, and so on, right? All these need to work in harmony. Uh, that doesn't happen so much in India, mm. right? For instance, specifically to spur technological innovation, mm. Uh, the venture capital industry has come into India on its own, starting from about 2000 or so, the private equity industry has come. But there's been no real effort to promote this from the government side. Mm. I'll take just, uh, if you take just okay. three elements, that is government industry and uh, and the financial sector. While in China, they've done that, right? So there's a, there's a lot of promotion uh, of companies, uh, especially in high technology areas such as supercomputers. That is something which I've studied. And that's very important to understand because both India and China started around 1989, 1990 to work on supercomputers. And we started at exactly the same level. We went ahead of them in two years. Our first supercomputer was the second fastest in the world. Mm -hmm. Now China is exactly equivalent to the United States and we know where. Okay. Right. So this, this is a real life example of what happens when the sectors do not integrate. So what kind of support does the government give in China? Is there, is there infrastructure support, financial support, or does it not have enough barriers? Uh, basically, it gives a lot of infrastructure support. It gives business, it gives orders, and it provides finance in the early days. Uh, it actively encourages uh, uh, the, uh, the use of technology and so on. Uh, and uh, it gives a certain amount of protection in the early days. Uh, um, in the, in the early days of a, of a sector, there's a clear preference. So there's a certain amount of protectionism, but it had the effect of, uh, of helping the entire uh, uh, sector grow. And so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. So that integration, you know, that's essentially what is missing in India. That's why you find companies, a company in India has to do everything on its own. It has to take all its decisions. Absolutely. It does not have the feeling that there's anybody or of any kind backing it. Hmm. And yet, conversely, if you see what is happening in China to technology companies now, <clears throat> where everyone seems to, you know, the government seems to be clamping down, uh, there are people who are the naysayers who say, see, thank God uh, we didn't interfere too much in supporting the company. We don't interfere in running it. 
Yeah, you see, because uh, this only shows that uh, China also has not found a perfect answer. Mm. Or, or the perfect answer, I mean, if you want to call it that, is to be found in the United States. So far, there's no country which can match that in the way that everything seems to work in harmony. So the Chinese are trying to work from an ideological point of view, trying to keep down inequality. So they want to keep down these, you, you know, these ultra-rich, uh, uh, you know, people who uh, head all these companies, they feel it's part of their charter. Yeah. Uh, while we say that, okay, thank God, at least we're not doing that. Uh, but uh, we at the same time have not developed that easy, you know, fluid way of working, which you find in the United States. Fascinating. So, Muli, I'm not going to move to the last segment of our conversation. All my young viewers and listeners love to get to know the guest a little more. So, therefore, there are a few questions for you personally. So, you know, you said uh, IIT Mumbai, IIT Bombay, uh, IIM Calcutta, great career. As you look back from where you are today, what would you say are three key milestones or pivot points in your life or your career? Okay, specifically from the point of view of my career. That's or life, whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, and both are interconnected in, uh, in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is, I would say, is when I joined IIT Bombay. Because uh, especially, as you said, people of our vintage, those who went to the IITs found that we were put in a situation where uh, suddenly uh, of absolute egalitarianism, mm -hmm. everything was equal. Nothing mattered about your background, whether you were rich, whether you were poor, whether you spoke English well or badly. You lived in the same room, you uh, read the same textbooks, you went to the same classes, ate the same food, and nothing mattered the only parameter of respect was performance mm. and how you got along with everybody. So uh, that got me out of my comfort zone. In those days, we used to uh, uh, join at a very young age, at the age of 16, as you might remember. So at the age of 16, it got me completely out of my comfort zone of, you know, of my life as it used to be. That was one. Uh, and then, of course, I went to IIM and I joined HCL. Uh, but uh, I think... Uh, uh, Again, the change, the important thing, uh, which was a change was when I went to Germany with the Indo-German Ex uh, Export Promotion Project. Mm -hmm. And that again is an experience which I think a lot of people have when you go into a different country, a different language, it's a completely different, um, uh, you know, you're again, completely out of your comfort mm -hmm. zone. You have to adjust uh, and uh, you find that there is a new way in which you have to work. Uh, and the third uh, was when I became uh, the CEO. There are a number of them, so I'll say four, actually. You know, I won't stop at three. Yeah. The third was when I became a CEO, and I realized that that was when I was really going to start using my MBA. Mm -hmm. Until then, I was just preparing for it. you know. And then I realized that as a CEO, okay, I was the CEO of a, of a small company. But the parameters of, on which I was then going to be measured from that point on with the same parameters that people like Narayan Murthy would be measured. Mm -hmm. So suddenly I found myself without knowing that I would be, you know, automatically measured and I pitchforked myself into that. That's and the fourth was, and the fourth was when I did my PhD in NIAS, because NIAS is very multidisciplinary and it changed the way I work. And that's why ultimately I've ended up in a fund. So Amazing. The of that. So I have time for two more questions for you. <clears throat> my next question is, in a life well lived, what does success mean to Murli? Well, success, I think, uh, is making a difference in a way in which everybody can recognize. Uh, it's not enough to say that, oh, I've done a good job of this. Mm. It's something which has to be recognized as um, measurably making a difference to other people. Uh, you know, uh, in any way, you create jobs, you inspire people, uh, you create a product which they can use, uh, or you give them ideas. 
in any way whatsoever. It, it can be small or big, but it must make a difference and people must recognize it. Wonderful. And my last question to you, and this is for the thousands of people who will listen to our conversation. What would your advice be to a young individual who's starting off on her or his career in the corporate sector? Well, I would say lose no time in becoming multidimensional and learning how to multitask. Mm -hmm. right? You've been told a lot of things that you must learn to focus that, uh, you know, the eye of the fish, you must focus completely on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. No, the, the world as it's changing is going to want people who are multidimensional, who uh, do a lot of things. This, this goes, uh, uh, you know, way beyond uh, work-life balance. You must have a lot of interests. Uh, you must value your own life as much as anything else. Uh, you must be passionate about your career and you must learn to multitask. The days of doing one thing at a time, achieving one objective are over. Mm. Irrespective of what your boss says. Fascinating. Muli, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for taking me down this incredible journey that you've had as an author, as a technology individual, professional, as an entrepreneur. Thank you again and all the very best. Thank you very much, Ashutosh. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I didn't think I was in front of a microphone at all. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.